Romans chapter 4. If you want to turn there, we're going to get there in a moment. And uh, uh, if you're a visitor here today, uh, let me just tell you what we've been doing here and, and try to put it in a context so you can grasp uh, what we've been talking about or what we've been doing. We started the book of Romans a while back, and, uh, and I have been building, uh, coming through the book of Romans, showing our people how that book of Romans is the number one book in your life as a Christian you have to get down. It really is the, the Christian's handbook for Bible doctrine. Everything that we need to know about uh, the church, the, the way God deals with the church, uh, is found in the book of Romans. And I have been systematically walking you through the chapters. We're up to chapter 4 now. And we saw a couple of weeks ago how that uh, the book of Romans, the book of Romans is basically uh, built around one doctrine. And then everything else adds in on top of that, though there's many doctrines in the book of Romans. But the doctrine that is dealing with is the doctrine of God imputing His righteousness to us uh, when we didn't deserve it and giving it to us by grace, nothing we could do to earn it. And we have seen that the book of Romans in that aspect is built around two men. And we studied those two men, or we're in the process of studying the second one. We looked at, first of all, the life of David. And we saw how that David was a picture of how God gave David his righteousness, did not take it from him, in the fact that David had committed two sins that under the Old Testament law demanded death, and there was nothing that could be done to take that away. And God just intervened and gave him, as we saw in the Bible, what the Bible calls the sure mercies of David. And then we began to talk about Abraham. And I showed you how that Abraham, Abraham represents the other side of the coin, where Abraham gets God's righteousness imputed to him, uh, and it shows us the relationship. The Bible says if you want to find out how to get God's heart, study David. The Bible says that he was a man after God's own heart. You want to study how to have a relationship with God, study Abraham. He's only one of two men in the Bible that are called the friend of God. And if you want to wind up at the end of your life uh, being God's friend and understanding what all that means, then listen carefully uh, as we study Abraham and uh, spend some time in it yourself and you'll really, uh, you'll really see how this thing works out. We're now had a kind of like an introduction to Abraham last week and uh, I told you that a study of his life is absolutely ne uh, necessary for you fulfilling God's plan in your life. Now last week... You remember that we talked about the difference between God's plan and God's will for your life. And we talked about how that many, many people don't understand the difference. They think they're one and the same, and of course they're not. We defined from the Bible last week God's will for your life as becoming more like Jesus Christ in everything that you do. Your job and my job as a Christian is every day to look at things a little bit different in life, look at them today more like God sees them than, than I see them. Tomorrow, I hope that your life and my life is changed a little bit, maybe by being here this morning or maybe by just God in your own personal relationship, that when you wake up tomorrow morning, you think a little bit differently. You don't look at circumstances, people, situations in life and think the way that you're thinking today. You begin to put into your life and see the circumstances as God sees it. That's really the key. That's really the key. And then we talked about the fact that God's will for your life is spiritual. It's what you do inwardly with God that produces God's plan for your life. Now, we talked about God's plan is something that you do. And in a general sense, that's true. But I'm going to add a third part to that uh, today, and we're going to talk about it. And that is, we're going to, we've talked about the will of God. We know that that's spiritual. We all have the same concept. Uh, 
the plan of God. That is in an overall sense what God wants you to do with your life. And then we have the work of God. Now let me explain the difference between the plan of God and the work of God. When I studied, and this is a little more entailed now than maybe than where you're at today, but that's okay. I'll break it down, and through the process of time, uh, we'll all get to this if you really want to put the Word of God into your life. When I talk about the plan of God, and I know I said it's something that you do, and it is, but it's more than just something that you, a particular thing you do. It's understanding the time element that you live in right now. I don't know if you know it or not, but we are living today in 2008. We are living in a time that is unprecedented in almost the history of man. I don't know if you understand the gravity of how close we are to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would go back in history, and the Bible breaks down the history of the church into seven different time periods, you would find that in every period of church history, the church, much like you and I, were up against a set of issues. There was a predominating spirit or a predominating force that was in that particular period that those Christians had to deal with. The Christians getting the victory in their life as far as a church is concerned, as far as doing what God wants this church to do, was understanding where you fit into God's plan. You ever stop and ask yourself why you, God allowed you to be born when he was born? I was born June 14, 1950. You want to write that down? Uh, June's already passed this year, but next year is another year. I was born on June 14, 1950. I've asked myself many, many times, I, I've asked myself many, many times, why did he have me born in, 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 in 1950? Why, in God's plan and scheme of things, why would, did he allow me to be born in 1950? What purpose did he have for me in his overall scheme of things or his overall plan? What did he want to accomplish in my life that in the sovereignty of God, if we use that term, in God's all-knowing and God's overall plan of everything, why did he pick and allow me to be born? I guarantee you it was just no biological accident that God said when Frank and Ruth Alexander decided to get married and have some kids, they were going to just say, well, you're just going to have Bob in June 14, 1950, and that's the way. No, no, God's plan is more specific than that. God exactly knew, like he saw Abraham. He knew exactly who I was. He knew exactly what he wanted me to do in my life. The only question was, would I do it? And when you understand God's plan for your life, that it's more about what you do. It's about, do you understand where you're living at today? You know what the biggest problem with some of your lives are today? You don't understand the urgency of the hour we live in. Some of God's people today are living their lives like you've got 50, 60, 70, 80 years. God's people are living their lives like the Lord ain't ever coming back. They're living their lives like the, 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 the main goal of our lives as the church is to get everything we can and hold on to it as long as we can get, get, get our fingers around it. And, of course, that's totally a breakdown of what God's plan is. We don't understand the urgency. And we don't understand the urgency because we don't understand the time element that we're living in compared to uh, God's overall plan. That's what I mean when it talks about the plan of God. Now, let me define for you the work of God. Let me give you a great verse. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Now, I don't know what you know about the book of Philippians, but in the book of Philippians, you're going to find that that book is built around 10 incredible life-changing principles. And uh, this is just one of them. But if you ever want to break the book of Philippians down and see it, there are 10 absolutely incredible life-changing principles found in the book of Philippians that, that the book is kind of wraps itself around. 
The first one is found in chapter 1, verse 6. And this is very important. It says this, Being confident of this very thing, that he, that's God, which hath begun a good work in you, will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Now there's your verse. That verse says the day you got saved, God began a good work in you. And that good work has to do with exactly what God wants you to do. You look at this church. This church is, uh, you know, we say, well, it's Old Paths Baptist Church. Or we say, yeah, we go into church. Or uh, we talk about uh, the church in its concept. But this church in its theological definition, this church in its Bible format, this church is God's work. This is what he has chosen to do in this city right here. I can't speak for anybody else. I can only speak for us. This is what he's decided and called us to do. It's more than just a group of people. It's more than just the concept of the word church. This church is God's work. And it's within this church, this local New Testament assembly. And that's the way God does it. God's program during the church age is the local New Testament church. This is the work of God. And your work for God, your work for God separates itself from the plan of God because the plan of God is you understanding the whole thing by which you work in. But your specific work, your specific work will be in this church if this is where God's called you to serve. This is your work right here. This church is your conduit pipe for your work and fulfilling your work for God much as it is fulfilling God's will for your life and God's plan for your life. And that's why when we teach the Bible, we teach it in three aspects. I teach you spiritually how you are to prepare your inner man or your inner being to be God's friend and build into your life the relationship spiritually that fulfills God's will. Once you do that, then I have the ability through Thursday night Bible study or one-on-one times together, and I show you the plan of God. I show you the whole layout of what God's plan is. Why? Because I want you in this work of God to understand the big picture. I want you to realize that not only does God want you to have a relationship with Him, but He wants you to understand from Genesis to Revelation what He's doing and then where you fit into what He's doing. And then I teach you how to be part of this work. I'll take young men and young ladies and I'll, I'll, that, that want to serve the Lord and want to do what's right with God and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll bring them and put them into uh, the different aspects of this ministry. Start you out slow and let you find your own way. God will show you. God will work with you. God will magnify and illuminate through what you do. And he'll bring it to the point in your life. And here's the, here's the great concept in Matthew. He says, if you be faithful over the little things, I'll make you ruler over the many things. It starts out in this church, your work of just doing what you can do. Just taking the two hands that God has given you. And it may be as simple as going over there and putting up some walls. Maybe that's all you can do right now. But that's where you start. It may be just as simple as as sitting down with a discipling somebody. Maybe you couldn't preach like some of the guys going down at the Bible conference. But you can one-on-one sit down with somebody and disciple them. Everybody doing what they can do as far as recognizing their work as they understand the plan, as they fulfill God's will for their lives. And when you got saved, God began a good work in you. And you need to prepare yourself for that work. You need to prepare yourself for that work. 
And that is part of what we do around here, uh, building into your life those three things. How to fulfill God's will, how to fulfill God's plan, and then ultimately to be, fulfill God's work for your life that He started in you. Now, we've been talking about Abram. And I told you that just as we study David in three aspects, we're going to study Abram in three aspects. And the three aspects we're going to study him is the first thing we're going to look at today is we're going to look at him as Abram. And then we're going to look at him next week as Abraham. His name got changed. We're going to see why it got changed, what it represents in the Bible, and then we're going to study him lastly as Abraham, the friend of God. I told you that uh, his life is a study of the progress. Everybody in this room, if you're saved this morning, every man and every woman, your life is, is pictured in the life of Abraham through the progress that he made or he didn't make, through the struggles that he has to fulfill God's work, will, and in time, God's work, and in time, fulfill God's plan. And what we see in his life is the obstacle that the devil throws in his path to stop him. And you need to be realistic about your own life this morning. You need to understand some things, and I think that these messages will help you grasp some great truth here and uh, help you, uh, some of you that really want to do this and be everything that God wants you to be, will help you get there. You know the model in the Bible for, for your life and my life? It's very simple. And I, I saw this a number of years ago. And when you want to really get a model... Uh, to get this thing down of getting God's will and getting God's plan and then fulfilling God's work down. You know what the model is in the Bible? The model in the Bible is the 12 apostles. Do you ever see this? This is one of the most amazing things you're ever going to see in your life. You realize, and this may be a revelation to you, you realize when Jesus Christ came to this earth in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that His plan wasn't to live forever and to fulfill all the things that He wanted to do. When he wanted to reach the world with the gospel, you realize that it wasn't like that he came down here and he said, well, I've got these 12 and these 12 will get 12 more and they'll get 12 more and I'll just hang around here forever and I'm just going to come back here and I'm going to lead this thing and I'm going to stay here and make sure the gospel gets to everybody in the world. That wasn't his plan. Sometimes we think that it went that way, you know, for a while and then, then the Lord said, well, you know what, there's trouble down in Jerusalem and they're going to crucify you. Now we've got to do this. And uh, so tell your apostles that you're, gonna, you're not going to be around anymore so they're going to have to pick up the load and keep on going. That was never the plan. God never intended His Son to stay down here and to fulfill everything. You ever notice where Jesus said to the apostles, He says, greater things you'll do than I do. What did He mean by that? I'll tell you what He meant. God knew that he was going to allow his son to be down here for three and a half years and then he was going to take him back to heaven because God knew that in that three and a half years he had trained 12 men and those 12 men and the other ones around correspondingly that we don't know about but those 12 men were ready now to fulfill what God's plan was and God's work was because they had fulfilled God's will in their life and they understood in a personal relationship where He was. Now, you don't have all of them that, that go on down through the Bible and you don't know what happened to many of them, but Peter and Paul and James and John and a few of the other ones, you can follow them right through. And it's very obvious. They understood the job that they had to do and they understood how to fulfill it and they understood what their work was. Let me tell you something. The model's three and a half years. You give me a young man or a young gal and you give me your undivided attention for three and a half years, you get the world out of your life and you do your part and make your decisions you got to make, allow me to do in my life what my job is with you, and I guarantee you in three and a half years I'll have you eating nails. 
I'll have you eating nails. I'll have you ready to deal with anything, anybody, any place, anytime, anywhere. But you see, it doesn't depend on me having a great plan. Hey, as far as I am concerned, I got one of the greatest formats to teach you the Bible that you'll find anywhere in the world. I tweaked it and put it together for over 35 years of my life. I know it works. I'll tell you something else. I, 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 you, 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 you look hard around to find a better style of ministry that you can learn what you need to learn and get the hands-on teaching that you got. The problem isn't me. The problem isn't the program. The problem is finding people that will put out of their lives the things they got to do and say, here I am, brother. You get me ready. For the next three and a half years, you tell me to stand on my head in the corner over there or stand upside here or hang by my armpits from the top of the ceiling or upside down or run up and down the street a hundred times a day. If that's what I have to do to learn God and to get God in my life, then that's what I'll do. After three and a half years, you know what the Lord said? He said, boys, you're ready. I'm going back to heaven. We have built my relationship. You got God's will. You have been me with now for three and a half years. You understand my plan. Or you understand my plan. Now, boys, I'm going back to heaven. And the work is up to you. That's the way it works. That's the way it works. The reality is, and of course you, you see, you probably begin to see the problem already. The problem is, and the reality is, that uh, uh, some of God's people, you know, not just here, but all around Christianity, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, they've been in churches. Nothing's ever changed. They struggle with the same thing today that they did 5 years ago, 2 years ago, 20 years ago. And of course the reality, that's where the problem comes in. We can have the best program in the world, but you know what? Those apostles, and you ought to go through some time and study their lives. You ought to go through some time and look what Jesus told them. They're going to have to give up. And this is where you get some of those weird statements where he says, if you don't hate your father and your mother, you have no part with me. Woo. Well, one place he said, you're to honor your father and the mother. And the next place he said, if you, don't, if you don't hate your father and mother, you can't have anything to do with me. What's he talking about? Does he mean actually that you are supposed to hate your father and your mother? Of course not. Of course not. You know what he said one other time? He says, hey, you want to follow me? You want to be part of my crowd? Let me tell you something. The foxes and all of the animals have holes to live in. I don't have any place to sleep tonight. You still want to go with me? In other words, what he's saying, you may have to give up some things. The life of following Christ looks glamorous, like preaching. It looks nice to be up here and everybody says, oh, I want to preach and I want to get up there and preach. It's not this point that you've got to focus on. It's all the crap you've got to deal with throughout the rest of the week. Amen. See? That's where it's at. That's where it's at. And, and, and a young man or young lady don't realize that. They just think, wow, you know what? Boy, I'll tell you what, I want to go to disciple. Yeah, but when you begin to get into somebody's life, it's like opening up a coffin of somebody that was in a coffin for four or five weeks in the hot sun. Everything is dirty, comes out. Sometimes it isn't too pleasant to look at. Sometimes it isn't too pleasant to smell. And sometimes it isn't too pleasant to deal with. But you know what? Welcome to the ministry. And three and a half years, he got those young men, those, those 12 young men. In three and a half years, he got them. And, you know, somebody said, well, Judas, what about him? Well, here's what I say. If Judas can do it, anybody can do it. That's what I say. 
He got 12 guys down there that at the end of three and a half years, he says, you've got, you've got my will. You, you, we have a relationship spiritually. You know the plan. You've seen me lay this thing out all times, everywhere through here. Now it's time for you to do the work. And that's how I approach it. That's exactly how I approach it. But the reality is uh, you have to do your part. You have to change what you've got to change about you, and sometimes that's really hard to do. Now, I need to say this to you. Some of you are doing really well. Some of you younger ones. I'm amazed at the way some of you younger ones have come on. I think that, you know, and, and I know, and I know because we talk when you come over and you think you're not moving fast enough. I understand that. That's normal. That's normal. You, under, you think you're not where you should be, you know, and you get down on yourself, so you should be farther. You think you should be farther. Hey, you know what? I'm, I appreciate that, but let me be the judge of that. If you want to know where you're at, you just come and ask me. I'll tell you where you're at, and I'll be honest with you, because I love you. And some of you would come to me this very day, and you say, Bob, I don't think I'm fast enough. I don't think I'm doing enough. I don't think that I, I should know more. And I'm going to say to you, you know what? You are right where you're at. In fact, you are probably ahead of schedule, and I am absolutely pleased with the progress you're making, and you just stay with it right like that. Somebody else would come up and say, Bob, I don't think I'm doing very well. I don't think I'm moving. I don't think I'm growing the way I should. And I just look at it like this. And what else? You're right. You're right. You're right. Bottom line is this. For you that are doing well, I got one word for you. One word for you. And I know that when you're young, you don't understand these things. You know what? I'll never forget the night I went forward to surrender to preach. I had just 19 years of my life. I had, you know, not been around God and done what God wanted me to do. I just got out of the army. I was 20 years old. I just got out of the army. I started going back to church because my father had passed away and God began to work in my heart. And I remember, I remember going to church that night and a man preached. And uh, I, I, I didn't know anything. I, I didn't know anything. I, the only Bible I had was the Bible that my dad had won in a Sunday school uh, campaign back in 1954. I still have that Bible. It's an old Schofield reference Bible, red Bible. Of course, every Bible should be red. But anyway, it was one of those things where, you know, and I, I, I still have that Bible today. And I walked in there that night, and that night that man preached, God spoke to my heart. And I walked down there that night, and I didn't know what in the world I was doing. I, I, God said, what'd you come forward for? And I said, I, 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 God's called me to preach. I didn't know what else to say. I, 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 I knew I was saved at that point. I knew I wanted to get back with God. I knew I was out of fellowship. But I just felt like the burden had it on me that, I, that God wanted me to preach. And the guy said, well, praise the Lord, brother. Let me pray with you. And we get down there, and he prayed for me, and I prayed for myself, you know, and asked God to give me this. When I stood up that night, people came down afterwards, you know, and shaking my hand and slapping me on the back and saying, praise the Lord, and hugging me, you know, and all these things. You know what? And I thought I, thought I was in the presence of holy angels. If you'd have told me that night that some of those people shaking my hands were trying to cut the pastor's legs out from behind his back and starting a problem over here and doing this, some of them weren't tithing, some of them were lying over here, some of them were doing this and doing that, some of them were the biggest rascals in the world. If you'd have told me that that night, I'd have looked at you in the face and I said, I, I, you're, you're nuts. But you know what? After 35, 36 years in the ministry, I understand those things now, see? I understand those things now. But I'm telling you this. I no longer made that decision. Boy, the opposition started to come. I went home and told my mother. I thought she was all upset with me because I wasn't going to church. Now I started going to church, and she quit going. You know how that works? 
And I went in and I said, uh, I said, Mom, I had, a, I, had a great, I had a great charm tonight in the service tonight. She said, that's good. I'm glad. I didn't know this. Two days later, the church sent me a letter congratulating on me on surrendering to preach and wanted to help. She said, my mom got the letter. And she comes in to me. She says, what is this? I said, oh, that's what I was trying to tell you the night. I said, I, I surrendered to preach. She looked at me and she said, you? She said, you're nuts. You, you're going to preach? And I said, well, yeah, me, I'm going to preach. Uh, you know what? You know why the devil did that? It wasn't because she didn't love me. She loved me to death. You know what? He'll use every opportunity to try to discourage you. You know what my word is for you this morning? Beware if you're doing well. If you're getting along and you're learning the Bible, beware. The devil is going to come. And I know you're young yet. You don't think it. You think you can trust the person sitting next to you. Well, you'll learn down the line you can't. The only one you can really trust is God. And you know what? And you, 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 all flesh is grass. I mean, you learn that. You learn that. You learn that. And what you'll do is you'll, you'll, you'll get to a point where you're not really feeling good. And you start feeling good about yourself. And that's exactly because you have no experience, you see. You have no understanding of how this thing works. You get yourself up there and start feeling good. And then the devil comes in and just knocks your legs right out behind you. Why? He wants to discourage you. He wants to shake you to the foundation core to see if you really have the marble legs it takes to stand in the ministry. That's what he wants to do. Happens all the time. I've seen the devil come in and sometimes it's not a bad thing. You know, we always think when the devil tempts us that it's something that's bad. You know, like, come on out and, come on out and get drunk. Come on out and smoke this. Come on out and steal this. Come on out and do that. No, no. Many of the times, it's normal things in life that we don't even think it's wrong. Hey, I've seen young men and young ladies get to a point in their life where they were really doing well and they got everything out and just like clockwork, God brings an old boyfriend back in, you know, Mr. 100% Wonderful, Mr. 10 plus 6, you know, Mr. Dreamboat. You know, and then, and then, bang, boy, the devil puts him right back. I've been in situations where I saw a guy get to the place where he was really doing well, and he really growing, and then here she comes, Miss Universe, right back into his life. You know, some gal, girlfriend he hadn't seen for 40 years, you know, and he's only 20. I mean, it's a situation where, where do they come from? I'll tell you where they're coming from. The devil's got a big bomber, a big old bomber plane. And he's flying around up there about 90,000 feet, looking through his bomb site. And when you just get to the place in your life where you start building a relationship with God, getting what God has for you, getting everything in your life, and saying to yourself, wow, I'm really excited. About that time, it's bombs away, and down he or she or it comes. I'll tell you, I love to tell this story. I, I tell it all the time, because it's, it's such a great example. Years ago, I had a guy I was working with, and, and he was coming along very well. And uh, he came into my office one day, and he said, Bob, he says, I just wanted to come in and tell you. He said, uh, he says, I'm moving to St. Louis. And he says, uh, I, uh, I just wanted you to know that, uh, you know, I, I really hate to leave the church, but, you know, they gave me a great jo job over there, gave me a raise, and it's a great opportunity for me. And he says, I'm, I'm moving to St. Louis. And, he, and, I, and, and I didn't know anything about it. Now, in my mind, I know what's going on here because I'm in this business, you know. And uh, it's like when you're, you're a used car salesman and a guy drives a car in he wants to sell and it's blowing big blue smoke out the back and he tries to tell you it isn't burning oil. <laughs> yeah, I've been around this business. I see the smoke, see. And I, I, I know what's happening. I say, to, I, you know, he didn't say anything to me. I mean, my rule of thumb is this. When in doubt, find out. I mean, get, get, find out what you're doing. And he had already done the thing. And he said, I said well, he says, you know what? I was going to talk to you about it. But he says, God just made it so clear. And I said, oh, I got to hear this. How did God make it clear? 
He said, well, they offered me the job last week, and he said, I was going to call you. And he said, and then I said, you know what, God, I'll tell you what. If you don't want me to go, give me a sign. And he said, so I figured out what I would do is if I put my house up for sale, and if God sold my house, then it was a sign that I would go. If God didn't sell my house with a certain amount of time, then it's a sign that, that, uh, that I'm not to go. And he said that to me with a straight face. I, I almost had busted out laughing. He said that to me like he thought the devil flunked his realtor's test. You think the devil can't step in and sell your house? Well, I know God won't either step in and step it or not step it, because you know what? This may be a reality. That's not the way he works. He gave you everything in here to make that kind of decision. Every principle in here. He gave you enough principles and enough concepts that when you're faced with something like that, you don't have to roll the dice and let God come through. The principle's already been written down. He never checked out if he had a church down there. He never checked out that if he had a, uh, you know, he was looking at the job, looking at the money, looking at the raise. When he got down there, he found out there was no church, nobody believed the Bible, and now he's right back out into the world six months later again. You know why? Because it was going good, and it was going good, and then the big black bomber dropped the egg on him. Beware. Beware. That's my word to you. Beware. Beware. I'm telling you, it happens. It's just part of it. You better learn it. You better learn it. Let me tell you something. This church is right now is under a satanic attack. Right now, as we speak. Oh, I got your attention on that, didn't I? Well, your eyes lit up. I could see people opening up their thing, pulling out their sword. <laughs> right now as we speak, there's a plan in design to destroy this church. As we speak, as we are having our service here this morning, there's a plan in design to stop this church from ever going forward again. And you know what? When you go into the new building and God puts everything up and everything gets right where it's at and everything is just kicking at it, you know what? To you, that's a shock, isn't it? You ought to see in your eyes when I said that. Some of you are already now grabbling on and inside you're praying, oh God, oh God, oh God, don't let that. But the bottom line is this, my point is this. I can't ever remember a time when the ministry not under attack. It always is. It always is. Do you actually think that this work is going to go on and stand for this book? That this work is not going to incur some kind of, some kind of problem after problem with somebody? Because the, the, it, it, it isn't about the person necessarily. It's about the bottom line is that the devil wants to drop the bomb on this church just like he wants to drop the bomb on you. Okay? My point is this. It just isn't about you. It's about the ministry too. There'll never be a time that this church doesn't do what's right as best it can, teach this book in a world that doesn't believe it anymore, and try to invest in people's lives. You know why? Because the devil doesn't want you to fulfill his will for your life. The devil does not want you to get God's plan for your life, and he sure don't want you to get involved in a work in this life. So he'll just try to rattle all the foundational things that he can do. And you know what? Just business. Just business. Just business. You know what you need to do? It happens, and you need to learn. It's part of your growing process. It's part of really what Abraham went through. It's part of understanding there'll never be a time when this church won't be under attack by somebody. So what's the point? I mean, I don't ever know of a time in my life, in the ministry, in the work, 
And it never be. Once you plug in, you better get ready for a battle. That's all there is to it. Now, you can do two things. You can snivel around and worry about it and cry about it, or you can take the position that I take. I've been in hot water so long, I'm hard-boiled, pal. It's okay with me. It's just part of the process. And you can't ever get focused on, on it in your own life. I bring it back to you now. Because you're going to get hammered. I guarantee you. You're going to come to a point and somebody's going to step into your life and going to say something that's going to try to knock you down. Stop the work in your life. Stop the growth in your life. And you have to realize that uh, the devil's going to try to throw you a bone and take you out of the Bible. Take you out of the church. And it's going to come to the point where it's going, to, it's going to be the end of the road. You say, well, how do you... That's why the Bible says that this whole life is in darkness. And out there for you and for this church, you know what you got? You got snares. You got traps. You got pitfalls. You got obstacles. And it's dark. Absolutely in darkness out there. And you're walking through life and, and you step on a landmine, blow a leg off. You step on this landmine, blow your leg, other leg off. You, you walk down here and you fall into a pit. Big old sharpened stakes pale you and your stock can't get off. You walk over here and you trip over something and you fall. It's in darkness. And the devil knows that you've got to walk through the darkness of this old world. He knows that this life is in darkness in this world. He's got traps. Sometimes he's pretty a trap, but she's a trap. Sometimes he's a handsome trap, but he's a trap. Sometimes it's a good-looking deal, but it's still a trap. Boy, thank God you don't have to depend on a realtor to get God's will for your life. You know what he gave you? He gave you this book. Now, I suggest that you don't ever get a Bible smaller than this. Because then if you ever steal my message, you can't use this illustration. You know what they have in the middle? I was telling you Thursday night about the 82nd Airborne Mobile Rapid Deployment. You know what their motto is? Their motto is, we own the night. You know why they say that? Because they can see in the dark. They've got the technology now through the night vision that they all, you see them over in Iraq all the time, those little <coughs> connectors on their helmets. Sometimes they have them up and they're flipped up. They can go out there at night, pitch black, <coughs> and just snap that thing down. And whoever's sneaking up on them now, it's like, hello, it's like daylight. Now that's a great, uh, that's, that's a great advantage in warfare. Now, the night is no longer a threat because you just flip a little button and now the, the night infrared illuminates the night and you now can be able to see in total darkness that you can see who's coming up on you. Well, that's a, you know, they, that just came out in the last 30, 40 years. There's been one around a lot longer than that, just book right here. Now, this is why you should not have your Bible any smaller than this because if you can't, you can't get it into a starlight scope configuration. Smaller than this, you let too much light in. This world's darkness. Pitfalls to be out there. What am I doing? I'm a child of God. I got a, I got a plan of God. I got the will of God. I got a work of God. But man, that's a, that's a landmine out there. Thy word is a lamp under my feet and a light under my path. Thy word, at the entrance of thy word, giveth light. You see, the book is your starlight scope. The book is your light in a dark world. And as you walk down this life with all its pitfalls, you just take this old black back 66 starlight. Oh, wow. Aliens on the ceiling. 
Oh, whoa, that's an ugly one. Whoa, over there, yeah. Whoa, look at that. Oh, okay, I got it now. Oh, just walk this way. We're off to see the wizard. Oh, yeah, I got it. Oh, yes, oh, yeah. Look at that, look at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, here I go. I'm walking through. Oh, it ain't going to bother me. I got the light, light playing under my feet, light under my path. I'm going. Oh, look at that. Look at those things. Wow, if I was, didn't have this light, you'd be scary. You ever want to oh, mess up? When you turn the starlight off, it gives your eyes a minute to adjust. <laughs> I love going through haunted houses, good ones, in Halloween. You do do, Betsy? No, you don't. My wife doesn't either. But I love going through them. I love when you get into those and you hear the music and you hear bumps down the line and you hear people screaming. And I, I love to be scared, uh, things like that, you know. And so you walk in there, you know. I mean, I, you, I haven't been there for years, but I went down to the edge of hell. And thankfully, that's the closest the edge of hell ever we're going to get. But anyway, <laughs> I'll throw that in there. And I'm down there, and it's scary, you know, and you go in there, and, you, and all these guys. And, and I remember one time, they had this guy, it looked like a dummy, you know, laying in the chair. It was a real person. And you walked over to it and told your friend, oh, it's, it's not, and he jumps up at you, you know, and scares you and all that stuff. And so, when you walk in there, but last time I went, I thought to myself, I'm taking a flashlight. <laughs> Just a little one. And I, when I get into the real dark rooms, because I don't know about you, but when I'm in a dark place, I don't, when I can't see anything, I don't like this. No, you, see, you don't like it with light on, see? <laughs> so when I get into a dark place, I just turn my light on. You know what? When I get out of there, I thought to myself, wow, that, was, that wasn't quite as exciting. You know why? Because the light took all the scariness out of it. I come to the conclusion that I didn't have to be scared of the dark because I had a lot of light with me. My point is this. You don't have to be scared of the dark if you have the light with you. See? But you got to get the light. you got to get the light. And the Bible says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You've got to be able to understand that that's how, that's how God illuminates the path. You don't have to make those decisions on your own. That's how you make bad choices. You get into a book that tells you whatever circumstance, whatever situation you've got in life, you've got a way to find out the answer. And that's how it works. Now let's look at the man Abraham, Abram for a second here. Now the name Abram, it means high father. Now I don't know if you know it or not, but names in the Bible are very significant. And it's even more significant when God changes somebody's name in the Bible. But the names in the Bible are very important. Now I know that you can't, sometimes it tells you in the Bible what the names are. Sometimes you have to get a, a Bible concordance or a Bible reference book and something, it'll tell you what the names are. Sometimes they have multiple different meanings in the Bible. Uh, but you know what? Every Bible has a name in the Bible, and it's, most of the time it's very important. Now, in our study of Abram, before he's called Abraham, and from, our, uh, and from Genesis chapter, when you get to Genesis chapter 11 and 12, uh, we see, uh, we see uh, some things about him that we need to understand. Now, up to, in Genesis chapter 11 and 12, he's living in the Ur of Chaldees. Now, I don't know if you know what the Ur of Chaldees is. That's modern-day Babylon. A Babylon is in Iraq. Uh, where Saddam Hussein was there in Baghdad, that is where Babylon was. That's modern-day Babylon. 
and I don't know if you know it or not, but uh, Shaddam Hussein, he claimed to be, he claimed to be uh, the reincarnation of Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon. Now, Babylon is a, you know, Babylon is a, is a very, a very key place in your Bible as well as history. And it's important that you know the history, history of the Bible to tie it up with the history that's going on, or what's going on today in current events. In Genesis chapter 10, you find the first Gentile kingdom. That first Gentile kingdom is in Babylon with a type of the Antichrist in control. The last Gentile kingdom found in Revelation chapter 18, that is the Antichrist kingdom, that is also called Babylon. Babylon through your Bible is not a good place. Babylon through your Bible has always been controlled by Satan to wipe out the nation of Israel. It was Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar in 606 B.C. that come down and took the, uh, the tw tw two southern tribes into captivity after Shennacherib took the ten northern, or took the ten northern tribes into captivity. And uh, it's, been a, it's been a bad place. So Abraham, at this particular point, Genesis chapter 11 and 12, he's right there in the middle of Ur, which is modern-day Babylon. If you go to Iraq today... And go downtown around the outskirts over there, you'll find that they got a museum, believe it or not. And in that museum is a huge piece of some kind of wall with writings all over it. And they, they say that that is an original piece of the Tower of Babel that's back in Genesis chapter 10 and 11. And it, maybe it is, I don't know. But that's where it was. That's where it was. But that's, uh, that's where Abram is. Anyway, he's called out of Ur, Babylon, Ur of Chaldeas. He's called out to go to a place called the land of Canaan. Now, the land of Canaan is modern-day Palestine, in particular Jerusalem. And you're going to find that Ur of the Chaldees is on the eastern border of Palestine uh, in your Bible. And uh, so he's called out to come out of Ur, a picture of God calling me and you out of the world system and sending them to a place called Canaan's land. Now, you know why it's called Canaan's land? It's called Canaan's land because for 400 and some years... Uh, while this is all going on down here, and while Abraham is down here, the Canaanites have taken up residency in that land. And so now it's called the land of Canaan. Abraham is going to go in and say, this land is mine. He's going to, in time, through his predecessors, going to kill all the nations and wipe them out, and he's going to take over that land. But right now it's called Canaan's land. It's also called the promised land. Why? Because it's the land that God promised them that they were going to live in peace and safety. Do you know what the promised land in the Old Testament, I know it's a literal thing in the Old Testament, but you know what that means to you and me in the New Testament? In the Old Testament, the promised land was a literal piece of ground that God gave them, and he says, it's yours. And in this land is all going to be the blessings of God and everything that you could want. All you have to do to keep that land and keep those blessings is keep my word. That's why it's called the promised land. You keep the promises that God gave you, you get to keep the land. See? Real simple. Now, for you and for me, it's a little different. Because God never promised us a literal land. The promises of God that God has given us is the promised life. And he simply says this, if you and I get saved, do what the Word of God says, and keep the Word of God close in your heart and in my heart, and live by the promises of God, we'll have those great blessings and a life that God wants us to have and enjoy all the things that God has for us. It's the same system. Anyway, he's called out and he goes to the land of Canaan. His name now is called Abram, which means High Father. And it suggests to us and certainly shows us when you study his life that he's done very well. He's very well off, probably highly respected. He's done well down in Ur. But God, you see, has another plan, just like you and me. 
We have our way in life before we meet God, and then God knocks on your door and says, I know you got everything you want, and I know you're here, and I know you're there. But you know what? I got a better plan. Do you want to go with me? And then you, like Abraham, have to say yes, or you have to say no. Just that simple. I told you last week that Abraham is the greatest study in all the Bible on how you get to be God's friend. And uh, it shows you the process by which that you go through. I want you to see that process. Turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. I want to show you a great principle here. This is incredible. These are the things you have to learn about God. Look at Romans chapter 4 verse 17. Now keep in mind, Abraham is called out. God's got a plan for him. This is a picture of Abraham making bad choices and getting all messed up and all the things that go along with it. But watch how God records the events. I love this. This is one of the greatest lessons you'll ever find. As it is written, verse 17, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Here it comes, verse 18. Talking about Abraham. Who? Abraham. Against hope, believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered Abraham, not his own body now dead, he was 86 years old, when he was about to be 100 years old, 99 here, yet neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered Abraham, not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving a glory to God. And being fully persuaded that he, God, what God had promised, he, God, was able also to perform, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Wow, what a great thing. Look at verse 18. Who against all hope believed, even God. Look at verse 19. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body dead. Look at verse 20. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. Look at verse 21. And being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able to fulfill. Now, that's a great thing. But you know what? There's only one reality in that. There's only one problem with that. You know what that problem is? None of that's true. None of that's true. None of that's true. He did stagger. He didn't believe. Why, when God taught Abraham down there, and Abraham, he says, Abraham, I know you're 86 years old, but there's coming a time in your life later that I'm going to give you the promised seed. Abraham just looked at him. You know what Sarah did? Sarah laughed. She laughed. You know what her firstborn boy that she has, his name is Isaac. You know what Isaac means? It means laughter. She laughed. And then she tried to say to God, well, I didn't laugh. And God said, oh, yeah, you did. I got it right here. You laughed. Want me to play it back? You laughed. You laughed long, you laughed hard, you laughed loud. You laughed. He did stagger. He did falter. He couldn't believe God. He didn't believe hope against all hope. And I'm telling you, you already saw how that when he come out of Ur, we talked about this last week, God said, come on out of Ur and leave everything you got. Brought half the town with him. Then when he gets over in Canaan, a famine happens back in Egypt. He loses faith in God and heads right back down into it again. Abraham's life is a picture of exactly what you and my life is. He can't yet believe and hold on to the promises of God. Every time he gets a, a little victory in his life, the devil drops a bomb and that big old black bomber up there and messes him up. 
He messes him up. Now, I want you to see this. Come on back to, come on back to uh, uh, Genesis here. Come on back to Genesis chapter 16. Now, when you get up here and read Romans chapter 4, verses 17 through 22, you're talking about the time that God told him in Genesis chapter 16 and 17 about the promised seed. Let's go back and look at this story together. I want you to see why it's so important. I told you last week. Bible says in the book of Corinthians that the things in the Old Testament are written for your examples, your examples, that you might learn not to make the same mistakes that these men made. Let's look at this. Look at, look at Genesis chapter 16, verse 16. Abraham is 86 years old when God tells him the great thing that he's going to do with him in the future. 86. What happens? Well, I'll tell you what happened. He didn't believe hope against hope. He, 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 he failed. He was weak in his faith with God. He did stagger at the promise of God, and he wasn't fully persuaded. I don't know what else to tell you. Now, I'm going to show you in a minute why God said that when it wasn't true. And the bottom line is this. When God told him that when he was 86 and 16, 16, he walks in there to his wife and he says, Hey, you know what God just told me? She said, yeah, he told me the same thing. What'd you do? I laughed. Well, I wanted to laugh, but boy, I'll tell you what. I'm 86 years old. She says, yeah, and I'm 70-something. How in the world am I going to do this? And she, here's how it comes. Here's how it comes. Here's how it comes. Here's how it comes. So they gather when they just couldn't believe what God said. Here's what they said. Well, I know what we'll do. I know what God meant. Oh, let me reinterpret that promise for you, Abraham. He meant you take Hagar. He wasn't really talking about me. He was talking about Hagar. And Abraham said, hey, I bet you're right. I bet you're right. Tell you the truth, you're a lot older than she is anyhow. If I got to have a child, I'd rather have with her in the first place. I think God's right. Yes, I see the hand of God in this. I prayed. You don't, some things you don't have to pray about. When God tells you clearly what the principles are, what do you got to pray about? You do what the Word of God says. And you know what happened? Hagar. From Hagar comes Ishmael. That's not all. Look at 1616. He's 86. And this is where he takes Hagar. And the next time, look at 17.1. Look at 17.1. Look at 17.1. The next time God speaks to him is in Genesis chapter 17.1. And now he's 99 years old. You know what you got? Well, I don't, doesn't take a math professor to figure it out or a rocket scientist you subtract 86 and 99 you got 13 years 13 years he lost fellowship with God because of one bad decision he made 13 years he had no conversation with God 13 years in his life the plan of God is on hold the will of God is on hold and the work of God isn't getting done for 13 years because he couldn't believe what God said now let me tell you why God says it's true when it isn't true. Oh, this is a great concept. This is a great concept. The reason why God never mentions his sin in Romans chapter 4 and only gives him the good things is the first greatest thing is this. And I don't know if you know this or not. After the crucifixion of Christ, after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will never find where God ever brings up an Old Testament saint's sins in a negative light again. 
Do you ever read Hebrews chapter 11? Hebrews chapter 11 is commonly called God's Hall of Fame. It is a, it is a walk down memory's lane of the Old Testament patriarchs and the great men. And listed in that Hall of Fame are some of the greatest men that you're going to ever study in the Old Testament. But let me tell you something. You know what it says about Abraham? It talks about basically that he believed God in everything that he said. You know, it talks about Samson. It talks about how did Samson wind up in the God's Hall of Fame? How did, how did some of these guys, how did Jacob, whose name was Schemer, wind up in the Hall of Fame? You know why? Because after the cross, when the blood's been shed, their sins were wiped away. That's why. You know, that's one of the greatest promises in the Bible. He never says one bad thing about one of the Old Testament saints after the crucifixion even though they've done some of the most terrible things in their life. You know why? Because once they get to the cross and the blood was shed, the sins were washed away, and he can never bring them up again. Now, that don't give you a bat the cop stole holiness fit. I don't, I don't know what's wrong with you. Your sins have been forgiven, and they have been washed away. Thank you. I'm just See how that just moves you. Well, wow, it moves me. That's, that's what God did. And then the other reason is, is because God imputed his righteousness to him. And the moment you got saved, God doesn't look and focus on the bad things that you do in life. He only sees what's good in your life. Ah, oh, that's the good news. Now here's the bad news. God may never imputed his sin to him because he had God's imputed righteousness. And the cross of Calvary blotted away the transgression that God never brought it up again. But oh, my dear friend, look at the consequences. Look at the consequences of Ishmael. For the next 4,000 years, the devil uses Ishmael and his descendants to try to wipe out, ruin, break the back, cut out the legs, and to wipe out every Jew of the promised seed on God's green planet. The prophecy about Ishmael is given in Genesis chapter 16, verses 11 and 12, and it ain't good. He's going to be the thorn in Israel's side. I, oh, God gave him his imputed righteousness, never brought up. In fact, stuck up for him when he, when, when he, when he didn't do what's right. God said, yes, he did, just like he does for you and me. But what he did and the consequences on this earth and his life, he paid for and Israel's paying for today. We look at the Middle East right now. <clears throat> Every problem that's going on in the Middle East. Every problem that's going on with Israel and <clears throat> the Arab nations and the Muslim nations. Everything that's going on from 9-11 to, to, the, to the terrorists and all the things that's going on today. Everything that's going on goes back to one man's bad choice. Yes, God a purged him by the blood. God took away the sin. Never mentioned it again. But on this life, he bears the reproach throughout his generations. For some decisions you make in life, God may forgive you and you may get past. But you know what? It alters your life for the rest of your life. In 570, oh, this is how the devil goes. Devil just flying around that big old bomber. Boy, he's just waiting to drop an egg on somebody. In 570, he looked down on a bomb site, and in 570 A.D., he saw the nation of Israel. He knew what was coming down the line, and you know what he did? 
He dropped the bomb out of that thing about a 5,000-pound blockbuster. Painted on the sign is Obama. No, a pin on the side is Mohammed. Got him messed up there for a minute. From Mohammed comes, comes Islam. Islam means submission to Allah. Starts with Muhammad, 570 A.D. You know who Muhammad claims to be? He claims to be in the direct line of descendants from Ishmael. Right back to Genesis 12, 16 and 17. They write two books, the Quran and the Holy Hadish. The Hadish being the sayings. And you know what you find in there? Every prophecy in Genesis, in Isaiah, every prophecy where God wrote in his Bible that it's Isaac that's the promised seed, they cross out Isaac and put in Ishmael. We are living in the greatest times in the history of the world, ladies and gentlemen. It's right here, right now. We're living, we're, history is unfolding right in front of us. Stupid Americans, but without a Bible now for 140 years. Hey, you watch. This is going to be the greatest election in the history of the world. Greatest election it is. You know how, and I don't, you know me, I don't get the idea that I'm anymore for John McCain and Obama. I'm for the Lord. My, I got a bumper sticker in the back of my car. It says simply this, kill them all, let God sort them out. That's where I'm at with it. I have no faith in anything in this world except what's in that book. You know how Barack Obama doesn't like his middle name, Hussein. He doesn't like Hussein because it ties him into all the other Husseins. But he, he knows America's stupid. He doesn't mind you calling him Barack Obama. Who knows in the world today that Barack was the name of Mus the, the horse that Muhammad ascended to heaven on when he went up through Jerusalem? Who knows the fact that he's been taught and trained that he went to school in a Muslim school? You know, you ought to read a book. It's a book called Behind the Veil by a, by a converted Muslim, Abad el-Sharaf. And on page 22, 23, and 24, and I quote, he says this, Any Muslim can change and lie about his faith to accomplish his mission and then come back to Islam as a great hero. I'm telling you what, my friend, we're living in some incredible times. Incredible times. Now, here's another great concept. You see, this is what you got. Yeah, God imputed his righteousness, never held him accountable as far as after the cross, and God blessed him, and he got through the failures. But look at the consequences of the bad choices. You know what this message is all about? It's one thing. Boil it down. We can all go home right now. It's about, and I got a lot of good other things to say. And I'm not going to let you out. You're going to hear them anyhow, but I'm just kind of building you up for it. Here's the bottom line. One message. You want to define this message in one line? Here it comes. One sentence? Here it comes. One short paragraph? Here it comes. Oh, I forgot what it was now. It was really good, too. <laughs> Make as few of bad choices in your life. That's my advice to you. We'll make enough on your own. We'll make enough just because we're stupid. We don't need to add fuel to the fire by just really doing blatantly dumb things. Keep the starlight scope on. Don't step on a landmine. Now here's another great concept. Not only was, did, he, did he lose the consequences of 13 and a half years, out of fellowship with God. 
But here's another great concept, and this is absolutely incredible. This is the parts that I love about the Bible. If you're ever going to pastor someday, if you're ever going to be in a position where you're working with people, this is absolutely a mandate that you understand what I'm saying. And I don't expect you to grasp it today. But let me show you what he says in Romans chapter 4, verse 17. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed in God. Now here it comes. One of the greatest verses in the Bible for you and for me. One of the greatest verses that shows you exactly what God is looking at when he's looking for you and what he's looking for in you and me. Who God, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not, whose day they were. You know what that is? The whole world saw an old man, 99 years old, and his wife in her 80s. The whole world saw an old couple. Abraham himself couldn't see it. The whole world. I guarantee you when Sarah, Sarah got pregnant with Isaac after the debacle with Ishmael, when she got pregnant with Isaac and, and she isn't showing yet and Abraham or her are walking down to the babies or us and are going in there and, and everybody says, well, look at Abraham and his Sarah eyes coming in here. Good to see you. Uh, what, what do you need? You getting stuff for, some, for the grandkids? You getting stuff for... Sarah says, no, Sarah's going to have a baby. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, help yourself. You know what? You ever been in those situations? One time I was sick in the army. They put me in a hospital for like two days. I had really bad strep throat. And you know you're in bed. You have nothing to do. And they give you those goofy pajamas. You can't go anywhere anyhow. And so I was feeling pretty good. So I was up walking around. You know what I'm talking about, John, huh? So I was up walking around. And I, I, I wandered into the psych ward. And I'm, you know, and there's a big guy. He's about, oh, man, he's about six foot seven. You know, big, big guy, man, big guy, you know, tough looking guy. And I'm standing there looking out the window, you know, just trying to check things out. Bored, man, you know. And, and he's, he's, he's walking around like this. And, I, and I'm thinking, oh, yeah, man, I can go up and say, hey, yeah, right on, man, I'm with you. You know, you know airborne, you know, boom, 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 yeah, you know, you know. But, you know, I had to get a ladder. You know, his hands are so high. And I walk up there, and he, he's walking up and down the corridor just like this. And, fi- and I'm looking out the window. Finally, he comes back up, and I says, hey, how you doing? He says, fine. And I thought he hurt his arm, you know, he maybe had it in a cast. I said, hey, I said, uh, What'd you do to your arm? He looks down at me and he says, what's the matter? Can't you see my giraffe? <laughs> I said, nicest giraffe I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Whoa, nice giraffe. Hey, what's his name? <laughs> Giraffey. <laughs> Walk your giraffe. Boom, I'm back, man. I'll tell you what. That's what it was. They walk into Baby Rust and he says, oh, yeah, Mary, Sarah, she's, uh, you know, she's, uh, she's, she's going to have a child. She's 87 years old. She's going to have a child? But they were laughing behind his back. You know why? Because the whole world, here it comes. I'm sorry, this one doesn't snap quite as loud as this one does. But this whole world, the whole world, everybody only saw an old couple. God saw the nation of Israel. God saw the nation of Israel. Oh, I'm telling you. You know what? My man, the man who mentored me, Mel Shabaka, taught me everything I know, gave me a love for the Bible, gave me my belief in the Bible, taught me to make basic ministry, got me ready, prepared me as I prepare some of you. And he prepared me, God's will in my life, God's plan in my life, and then so I could find God's job in my life. When he was 56 years old, when he was 56 years old, 
in Canton, Ohio. He, had a, he was part of a church that was just a great church, and he had one of the greatest uh, college and career classes in the country. He, 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 he was set for life, set for life. He, had, he was making good money. He'd been there for 20-some years, good security, good ministry. He could fly out and preach anywhere he wanted to preach, anytime during the week, come back in, had everything he wanted. At 56 years old, God called him to go to New York City to build a church in a place where he didn't know one person. He, took, he quit his job after 20-some years, resigned the ministry, and left with nothing but the clothes on his back. Not one person went with him other than a few short people, but his wife and his family. And they went to New York City to build a church in a place that was, the, without a doubt, is the hardest, roughest place to go in and build a church from scratch. Four or five years after he'd been there, we went up to visit one time. And I, I went in there, and he was telling me about his church and the church building that God gave them and how it was this and how it was that and how it was everything that he could ever want. And, and it was just, God is so, he was so excited about it. And, 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 and he, he took me down there, and honest to goodness, we, we get out of the car, and I'm, I'm thinking, where's the building? All I see is a couple of derelict places in an old, broken-down, derelict Catholic church. And he says, here it is. What do you think of it? Come on in. I walked in. The door fell off. Six inches of water in the basement. Holes in the roof. He, I said, Mel, he says, yeah, I said, it used to be a Roman Catholic chapel, but they don't use it anymore. He said, yeah, we ripped out the kneeling thing. We didn't need them. <laughs> and threw them out in the backyard and had a bonfire with them, you know. And, and I'm looking at this thing, and I'm saying, he says, he says, yeah, God gave us this building. What do you think of it? And I said, wow. I said, he said, yeah, he said, and God was a steal. And I said, what did it cost you? He said, $9 million. I said, where do you got $9 million? He said, I don't, but God does. <laughs> now, this is the guy who at the end of every year took whatever money he had left in his banking account at the end of the year, and Barb knows this is true, put it in a Christmas missionary offering and started out even with God the next year again. See? He did that for 40-some years. So you see, when you train yourself that way, you don't have a problem saying, well, this building costs $9 million. Uh, I, I, I don't have $9 million. In fact, somebody said to him, he, says, he, he, signed, a loan, he signed a contract for the, for the building. Guy walked out and says, he says, uh, he says where, do you get, where are you getting $9 million? He says, that ain't my problem. That's God's problem. God just called me to get here. He's got to pay the bills. And you know what? He paid for it. You know what else? I went back four years later. Walked into that place. I couldn't believe it. It was the most beautiful building on the face of this planet. God had brought into his church men who were in construction. He started winning to Christ one at a time. God brought everybody into his church. Everything he needed, God gave him. And they went in, and when I went back, I stood there and looked at that church. I looked at the basement, the Sunday school space, everything they had. And boy, I'll tell you what, that verse just came into my mind. You see, when I went there, I saw a broken down old Roman Catholic Chapel. Mel saw the first Bible Baptist Church of Staten Island. The key, my friend, that God had with Abraham is God saw past Abraham's problems. He saw past his struggles, and he saw something in Abraham that he said, you know what? I can get him through these. I can use him. I'm going to talk to you about those in just a second in closing. I've often wondered early on in my life when Mel was working with me, helping me, 
I did a lot of dumb things. But I, years later, I, I, I looked at my own life and as I began to work with young men and young ladies and I began to see in some of the people I worked with what he saw in me. And I began to look at that thing and I said, you know what? <clears throat> There's why he invested in my life what he did. He saw in me what God saw. And that's the whole key. You've got to quit looking. You've got to quit living in the natural and move into the supernatural. You've got to quit seeing things. When you deal with people, you've got to get past their problems. You can't look at where they're at. You've got to understand that everybody struggles and goes through the issues in time. Oh, there's some bad people out there, but God shows you who they are too and who to avoid. But the bottom line is, the people in general you God brings into your life, you've got to look past where they're at. You've got to see what God looks for. You know what God looked for in Abraham? First thing he looked for was his family. Remember we talked about this? He was willing to commend his family. Second thing I looked at is he saw in him. Now I know, I know he didn't, he didn't when, he, when God caught him out of Ur of Chaldees, I know he brought half the city with him. He brought all of his people with him and all of his cattle. And no, we focus on that many times. But you know what the thing that I see beyond that? No, this is how God sees it. I see that he was willing to go at all. You see the difference? I could stand up here and preach on the fact that he brought all the trash and junk with him that caused him problems, and he did. Or I could stay to take the other side of it, what God saw, and said, you know what? I know he brought all the trash with him, but you ever stop and think he's the only one that was willing to go when nobody else would? Some of you claim about the fact, you say, well, Bob, you know what? I'd like to do this, and I'd like to do that, but I don't know if I'm able to do it. I don't, I don't know if I'm able to do what God wants me to do. And I know that's some of your hang-up. You've got to get past that. God, nowhere in the Bible ever asked any man or woman to be able. God just asked them to be willing. If you're willing, God's able, man. He's the one that's able. He is. He is. And I'll tell you this, not only did, he, did God see he could handle his family and he was willing to go, but I'll tell you something else. He did believe God in what he had enough faith to believe in God in. Maybe he couldn't get way out here about Isaac, but he believed him enough about the stars that he got saved. You know, we all fit into that category at some time in our lives, especially if you just get plugged in or even all the way down through your life. We all fit into Abraham's life. That's why he's such a great example. We all come to the place where we got we to gotta look past God, we got to see what God sees. we got to see how God doesn't focus on our shortcomings. He, he takes those in stride as long as we're willing to fulfill the last one. I better, I better give you this one before I, I, I get. You know what the fourth thing God saw in him? And this is our downfall, all of our downfall. You know what Abraham was willing to do, what most of us are not? Abraham was willing to learn from his mistakes. You know that's the biggest problem God's people face today? Multiple mistakes in the same categories. God saw in Abraham not only somebody that was willing to, uh, was willing to uh, take care of his family, willing to go, who could believe God in what God told him at the level where he was, but he learned also by his mistakes, and he grew through them. You know what? I never fault a person for mistakes. We all make mistakes. Sometimes the consequences of those mistakes are greater than others, but we all make mistakes. Everybody does. You find somebody who likes to fault somebody about making mistakes, and you'll find somebody that thinks they're a perfect person. We all make mistakes. You know what the problem is, though? The problem is, do you grow? Do you learn from your mistakes? Do you grow through your mistakes? Or do you make the same mistakes over and over and over again? 
You know, in training up people, dealing with people. If you ever become a pastor and you want to, you want to, you want to prepare people for God's will and God's plan and God's work, you've got to look past the human side. You've got you to look past the mistakes. You've got to look at these things and you've got to look at God in their life and what God does. And you've got to begin to see them from where God's standpoint. None of us look too hot the first time God laid eyes on us. But he was willing, if you find these four things in a person's life, if you find a young man or a young lady or a mom or dad, that maybe they struggle, but you see in their lives these things, these are the basis by which God looks for. And this is the basis by which God dealt with Abraham. The life of Abraham is a picture of our struggle to build our relationship with God. I told you last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that these things were for an example and in samples and our admonition. You know what? There's absolutely, absolutely no reason. And I don't care how bad the times are. I don't care how wicked it is and how rotten it is out there. I'm going to tell you something. The Word of God today is the same Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God is the same Holy Spirit of God as He was in the book of Acts. There is absolutely no reason within this church for you not to fulfill God's will for your life, God's plan for your life, and do God's work for your life other than you just don't want or are not willing to change about you what you have to change. The man Abram, his failures, his progress is an example to me and you. It's an example not to get discouraged when you fall down, but you get back up again. It's the process. Understanding it's slow and it's hard. It's never fast and it's never easy. It always takes longer to undo something than it does to do it. But the victory, my friend, has already been won. Avoiding the pitfalls, seeing them, the Word of God being that lamp under your feet and light under your path, the snares, the traps of Satan, <clears throat> to cancel God's plan, God's work for your life. <clears throat> learning from the men of the Old Testament, the New Testament, that struggled like you and I do every day, but obtained the ultimate goal, and that is to become God's friend. You all have that ability. If you're saved this morning, there isn't anybody in this room that does not have the ability to get there. It's the question, do you have the want to? It's the question, are you willing to change, to put into your life, to get out of your life, those things that have to go become God's friend. Next couple of weeks, we're going to look and we'll build this thing. And next week, we're going to see where God changed his name and how this whole thing fits into Abraham coming to the place where the Bible says, Abraham, my friend. You know what? I can't think of a better, 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 better thing that God can say about a person than to look down and see me or see you and say, you know what? He's my friend. You know, we say that flippantly. God never says it unless the meat is on the bone that backs up what he says. And there's a process to becoming God's friend. And that's what we're going to look at as we come through the rest of Abraham. Because he's the perfect case study in all of the Bible. He shows you and me how to be and become and reach that goal of being God's friend. Let's pray. Father.